Hey. Hey. Welcome to this week's episode of the 13th Floor. I'm Stacey. I'm Alex. I'm James. And you guys, tomorrow's Christmas. Yeah. Sleigh bells ring a ling. Yes, Alex is the most excited for Christmas that I think I've ever seen anyone be. Ever. Mm. Of all time. Yes. He's been talking about it nonstop for the past month. Every day. What do you want for Christmas this year, Alex? I don't know. That's mm. the amount of effort I get. Every time I'm like, what do you want for Christmas, Alex? I need to get you something. Oh, no. That's about it. That's all you get. <laughs> Figure it out. You know, get me um, an aquamarine necklace. There That's we what go. I want. Oh, well, there we go. Oh, my gosh. Look at that. You oh, can buy my. yourself a gift. James. <laughs> Ah. When people ask you what you want for Christmas, do you have trouble telling them anything? Yeah, I actually do. Oh, it must be a boy thing because I can think of a thousand things. That oh, I need. see, how many times have I asked you for something that you want? You know, here's this pillow. Oh wow, it's got, I think it's got paper in it. Yeah, it's so it does. Loud Put it down. I'm sorry, dear listener, but um, <laughs> I ask you all the time, "What do you want?" I don't need anything. I don't know. <laughs> but I showed you things. I showed you that little exactly. Little yeah, thing. so that's what women do. They're like, isn't this nice? And what it really means is, get this for me. Yeah, that's exactly what it means, James. Oh, isn't this a cute jacket, Alex? Yeah. Remember that? And yeah. now, guess what? <laughs> they, don't, they don't have it in my size anymore. So. Well, then guess what? You never showed it to me. So whose fault is that? Uh, all right, whatever. Um, listen, well. listen, listen. I have some good news, James. Okay. From last week, we found the remote control. <laughs> oh, that's good. Yep. And guess where it was, James? Uh, in the couch cushions? Directly underneath where Cece sits I, all the time. I had and been... not even underneath the couch cushions, just under the blanket she sits all the time. It was, it was wrapped up in a blanket. It was not wrapped. Much, it yes, was not wrapped. I had been sitting on it for days and just didn't uh, even realize it. And you know what? I'm not going to apologize. I'm not going to because, listen... You could have looked underneath that blanket too. No, I couldn't have because you refused to move when I'm trying to look. That's, it's so it's so degrading. I, I, I just want to sit here and rest. Well, it's frustrating because it's like this is the this thing, is James. Amazing. Granted, yes, this one time I was sitting on this it. This is not the first time. But there are other times where I'm not sitting on it, and he just automatically assumes, "Oh, Cece, get up! You're sitting on it." And I'm just like, "How?" That's because nine How times out rude. of ten you are. No, I would say three times out of ten. Thank you very much. Don't you think that that's enough of a percent to warrant getting out? No, <laughs> not at all. Anyways, James, I'm sorry you have to listen to our marital problems. <laughs> you know, this is this is probably one of the bigger ones, which mm. I think means we're doing pretty good, right, Alex? Mm. <laughs> Anyways, listen, Merry that's, Christmas. That's what happened between OJ and Nicole. It was a missing remote. Oh my god, don't say that, James. Well, what? So someone else comes in and murders her? Alex, Alex. He has to find it. Alex uh, Alex is joking, you guys. Listen, it's time for hearty hellos, okay? Okay. And we're gonna give a hearty hello to literally everyone around the globe right now. Because it is the holiday season. And I think that everyone deserves a a hearty hello and a Jingle bells and uh, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer and yeah, whatever right. holiday you celebrate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you so Special much Special shout out to Siberia. Please send me some Fly Amanita. Uh, James. James. <laughs> I didn't you provide a mailing address. Don't worry about it. Uh, you calm yourself down. Mm. No, I, um, you know what I really want to try? Tim Tams. 
from oh, Australia. I love Tim Tams. I've never had one, but I've seen so many people talking about them lately, uh, and I'm like, that sounds They amazing. are a very oh, mediocre cookie if you just eat them on their own, but if you do the Tim Tam Slam, they are phenomenal. What's the Tim Tam Slam? Tim Tam Slam, you bite a corner piece off. And then you bite another corner piece off, and then you dip it in whatever hot beverage you have, whether it's coffee or hot cocoa or tea, and you, you draw it up real quick, like, like a straw, and then you eat it. And what happens is the hot liquid, it goes through it, and it just melts the interior real quick. So it's, oh, man, it's really good. Tim Tam Slam. Tim Tam Slam. Well, all of our listeners in Australia, you guys, I hope that I, I want you to eat a Tim Tam for me, and I will live vicariously through you all. Yeah, you guys, is it time for an icebreaker? Sure is. Ready for it. All right, James. <laughs> um, yeah, since it is Christmas, I was just thinking, like, uh, when it comes to, to Christmas treats, what, uh, what's your go-to? Oh, Christmas treats. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I know what my Thanksgiving treat is. It's a pumpkin well, log. But For me, my dad makes Chex Mix every year. It's you know, it's funny. I was thinking, delicious. like, my, my twin sister makes Christmas crack, which is, like, a form of that. Nice. You know, I actually think that mine is probably Chex Mix, too, but it's wow. my brother's Chex Mix. This episode is sponsored by Chex Mix. Yeah, Alex it's and I both have, we, we butt heads over the Chex Mix Chex, thing. But we both like Chex Mix, and that's that's what really brings us. Well, I, I had a piece of fruitcake today, and I thought, this is so really why? good, so. So you know you're elderly now. Yeah, I was about to say, like, has fruitcake always been good and I've been deceived or am I getting older? It's one of the two. I think I think that you're getting older. Yeah, Alex's mom got a piece of fruitcake for Christmas when we celebrated a couple days ago. Mm-hmm. And that thing weighed at least at least 10 pounds. Oh, they're Massive. so dense. Yeah, they're so oh. dense. It's amazing. I just yeah. don't like that when you bite into it, it's got the gummy pieces. Uh, no, no. Mm-mm. Just give me a plain <laughs> piece of cake. And you will make me so much happier. I've never had fruitcake, and I plan on living the rest of my life that way. Wow. I love the idea of, of Alex on his deathbed eating fruitcake for the first time and feeling like <laughs> immense regret because turns out it, it's his favorite food. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the wasted years. <laughs> yeah, who knows? We don't know what the future holds for us, but you know what I think the future holds for us right now? Just sharing some Christmas historical stories and listen james and yeah james and alex are gonna go christmas history i'm actually taking it to a different holiday i'm gonna be talking about something new year's related so that was not the assignment yeah i know i know (laughs) that we have another episode that's coming out on new year's eve i think is the date so it's like i could have saved it for that but listen we're gonna be talking about a different topic that day so I'm not going to muddy the waters with that episode. I'm just going to muddy the waters with this one. Okay. Let's muddy the waters. Yes, James. <laughs> I think that Alex, Alex should go first. Oh, you think so? Yeah. Alex has already moved the Zencaster screen, screen around. around so that he can go first. Because I think that even if we said, no, you're not going first today, he would have a heavy protest. It would be a uh, light protest. <laughs> go for it, Alex. Yeah, Alex, you, you, you do your thing. All right, all right. I've got our first little Christmas story. It's a cheery, a cheery story. It actually is. Unlike, you know, normally when I doom and gloom, which is the fun stuff. So, I want to give a shout out to uh, 5 com. They gave me a pretty good layout, like a kind of a beat, beat, beat for beat on the story. And then, shout out to R4DN, I don't know what that's supposed to spell, dot com. 
Uh, and it kind of gave me a really great breakdown of what was good and bad about his reign. And honestly, it's, I mean, not not all of it, but a lot of it is pretty good. Okay. So, you all ready for the ride? Yeah, who are you talking about? All right. So, on Christmas Day in the year 800, at St. Peter's Cathedral, Pope Leo III said, to quote, to Charles Augustus, crowned by God, the great peace-giving emperor, be life and victory. Now, you may not recognize the name. Charles Augustus, and that's because most people know him as Charlemagne. Charlemagne! Charlemagne. And on Christmas, he was crowned the Holy Roman Emperor. Uh, When his dad, Pepin the Short, died in 768, uh, Charlemagne actually became King of the Franks. And due to like this big fractional split that's happening between uh, Rome and Roman Catholicism, it left this big kind of power vacuum for someone that was, you know, king of the Franks, which is not really a big, it's not a big place. And this guy that's king of the Franks kind of is able to rise and claim the mantle of emperor because everyone else is so divided. So this big power vacuum in tangent with the rapid spread of Islam at the time uh, led to the Pope uh, to quickly jump to anoint someone that he looked at as powerful. Now, he looked towards uh, Charles Augustus because he had shown himself to be a powerful military force. Almost every year since he had been deemed king of the Franks, he deployed his military, and he was also part of that, and he would clean up the borders of his kingdom. So he would battle with the Spanish and the Saxons, and that's two different fronts of the war. One's north and one's west. I'm blanking. But he's, he's, he's on two different fronts. And so he's up there, he's out there cleaning up the borders of his kingdom, trying to push them back. The Saxons would be north and the Spaniards would be west. West, okay. And uh, they're (laughs) fighting on two fronts. And so he's, uh, you know, you're if you anyone who fights on a war on two fronts, they're not opposed to the idea of an alliance. You know, that could be something that's pretty helpful. Oh, yeah. Uh, And thus, this alliance with the Pope was kind of inevitable. So this Christmas in the year 800 was a momentous one because Pope Leo III, like I said, anointed Charlemagne and it set this pace for the next 700 years. Now Charlemagne was christened, he's christened the Holy Roman Emperor, which brought a big wedding of church and state that hadn't really been seen, at least in a very long time. Um, So what was significant about appointing Charlemagne? Like, like, what did it do for history? Why is this a, a good thing? Yeah. Why do we care on this Christmas episode? <laughs> um, besides that it happened on Christmas. That's, that's really mostly it. But it set the pace for the next 700 years of, of history. But what was the significant about it was that he was the first recognized emperor to rule from Western Europe since the fall of the Roman Empire, Western Roman Empire 300 years earlier. Hmm. So that's a pretty big deal. Now, he also stimulated the economics, he stimulated uh, the political life, and he also fostered this cultural revival known as the Corolingian Corolingian (laughs) Renaissance. And Charlemagne did this big thing that, uh, you know, it shouldn't surprise anybody that this is important, but it actually revolutionized and injected 
all this gusto into the country, and that is a massive overhaul of the education system. Yeah, yeah. He he himself was illiterate, but that was like the best thing he did. Yeah. So a lot of Western Europe, and I guess Europe in general, but a lot of Western Europe had begun neglecting anything like literacy and just studying and learning. Like you know, pretty important for a developing country, right? Yeah. <laughs> if you don't have educated kids, you're doomed. So. What was so special about his new position, right? He gets this position from the Pope, and, you know, what kind of authority does he have? Well, the funny thing is, he doesn't really have any. Hmm. Um, it's, it's not like the title of king, where you're, like, immediately a ruler of a country or anything like that. It's more of like a, a status symbol, more than anything, but it doesn't, he doesn't actually really have a lot of extra authority than he did previously. Hmm. But it does give him this cachet of uh, mm, respect, I guess, where everyone starts looking at because the Pope's, you're working with the Pope. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, there's a spiritual the component where it's like, don't piss off Charlemagne because if you piss him off, he might tattle to the Pope and then you'll be excommunicated and then you'll go to hell. And everybody <laughs> under you will also go to hell. So don't piss them off, you know? <laughs> like, exactly. Yeah. Like imagine exactly. today, you know, you see people complaining about gas prices. Imagine if on top of that, it's like, Wow. Thanks, Mr. President. We're all going to hell. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Um, so what he did was he actually used war to take over and expand his area of influence. So as he took over these regions, he would put uh, Frankish nobles in charge of these areas. But what was unique about him was that when he did do this, he would leave the local culture and the laws alone. So it would preserve the people's way of life, generally. Now, there is a bit of an exception there, right? Uh, he, he wanted you to convert to Christianity. He didn't really care what kind of Christianity or anything like that. But convert to Christianity, he's going to leave you alone. So this was, a, this was big. This was huge because, as I said earlier, we had, fra- we had these different divisions of Christianity all fracturing and kind of fighting, just infighting, I guess. Now, another cool thing that he did um, was that he was rooting out the bad eggs in Christianity. So he would go to the clergy and he would enforce a much higher moral standard among the clergymen (laughs) to give a, I mean, that immediately gives Christianity more credibility. Like how many times have we seen a religion like a, especially Catholicism right now, where it doesn't feel like they actually care about that ongoing problem that they have with young yeah. kids. Right? <laughs> right? Yeah. Now imagine yeah. somebody walked in there and goes, we're going to clean this up right yeah. now. <laughs> that's, that's what they need. They need a really pissed off bishop who's ready to flip tables. Yes, that is what they need. And so he was essentially doing that type of thing. He's cleaning it up. He wants it to be respectable. And he standardized uh, several aspects of the church, which also makes it more unified and stronger. So even though you do have these different divisions, he's kind of cleaned it up a little bit. And he also unified all these countries' currency. So a lot of them would have maybe gold or silver. When, and when you're intermingling between countries, that can cause a lot of problem with trade and anything. Like, who wants to convert your currency whenever you go somewhere else? Yeah, especially right? when you don't have that automatic <laughs> conversion that we have nowadays. Right, right. And not only that, but I mean, when you're so close to your other countries, like, yeah. you know, you, the U.S. is huge. We kind of forget that all these other countries are almost states. 
in their size in some ways. And so they were having to convert their stuff. And so when he eased that all up and he switched it all to silver, it made trading easier and just the, it just created this economic boom in the area. Mm-hmm. Now, again, the, I, I would say, that, you know, the worst thing that he was probably doing was, you know, if you didn't convert to Christianity, then he did kill you. Um, <laughs> so that's pretty not, that's pretty not great. It was the Holy Roman Empire. <laughs> well, it, was the, it was the Holy Roman Empire. Now, he even let the country kind of govern itself in a lot of ways. So, like, French speakers and German speakers decided to separate Europe in terms of, like, hey, the French are going to be here, German speakers are going to be here, like, because you can't really talk to each other, so let's just <laughs> split up. And what's kind of funny about that is the Germans actually became the more powerful area because they had all the warrior kings. So, you know, those with the biggest guns are going to be... I know there's no guns back then, but those with the biggest weapons are going to be the uh, <laughs> the more powerful of the two. But overall, I think it's a net good, especially in a time where the the west of Europe was in a steep decline. Like They were getting dumber and dumber. They were getting more and more violent. And you have someone, while still his means are violent, he cleans everything up. He educates everyone. And he's a lot, He's a big part of the reason why a lot of things now exist. Not because he started the inventions, but just because he started the ed- required education and all that. Hmm. Charlemagne rule. Charlemagne. <laughs> well, Alex, thank you for telling us about Charlemagne. It's a fun name to say. It is a short. It is a, well, I don't know what I almost said, um, but it is fun. <laughs> James, if we are going to go, because you and I haven't really talked about what, we're, what I'm talking about, mm-hmm. but if we're going to go per Alex, how do you think we should do it? Do you think he should I, go first I think you historical? Should, so I think we should end with the Christmas story for Let's the Christmas episode. Let's do it. I think that's good also because my computer is about to die. So. <laughs> Um, so yeah, I got a lot of my research today, you guys, from Time Magazine, National Geographic, and a couple of other little sites that I'll sprinkle in here, but Chicky Wickies, do you guys want to know what I'm talking about? Yes. yes. I am devoting our Christmas theme to New Year's instead. Mm. Uh, the same holiday, yes. Yeah, I'm taking it away. <laughs> I'm going to be talking about something that happened not too long ago, but it had everybody around the world on the edge of their seats. And that is Y2K. Uh. AKA the Millennium Bug. AKA the Year 2000 Bug. James, are you mad at me for talking about Y2K? Be honest with me. Not at all. Okay, good. It does feel a little unchristmassy, but it's a fun topic. So, yeah. Listen, listen. There's a lot that's happened on Christmas throughout the years, but not all of it. Like, a lot of it's very dry. So I was like, I'm just not even going to deal with it. I'm just going to talk about something else. There, so, was, there was panic in the back. I'm talking about Groundhog Day. <laughs> exactly, yeah. exactly. I'm doing that. So you guys, if you're listening to this and you're at least 26 or 27 years old, you probably remember Y2K to some extent. I remember it very vividly, but I was young enough that I didn't really understand why people were so frightened of it. But the whole idea was that computer systems would fail and become unresponsive, which would in turn lead to catastrophic outages all over the world. The World Bank would fail. The power grids would fail. Basically, just the global network would just come crumbling down. Mm. So any industry that kind of relied on any type of computer programming might just go kaput. 
So bye-bye to, again, electronic banking. Think about hospital machinery failing, the stock exchanges. So it was like there was there was a lot of fear around this, and it all surrounded the date. That's why everyone was freaking out. Yeah. Can you imagine that now? I mean, we're well, James, way more dependent on computers than we were. James, you just you just hold up, hold up, because I've got some news for you at the end of this. Okay. Uh, yes. So, with Y two K bug, it was most common for computer engineers who were designing and building various programs to write the dates with six digits. So, like January first, nineteen ninety nine, would have been zero one zero one nine nine. And so they would leave the 19 off. So the huge fear was that when we reached the millennium and we transitioned from the 1900s to the 2000s, computer systems wouldn't know how to interpret the date and then everything would go haywire. And the whole reason computer programmers use six digits, which I mean, it makes sense, but I never thought about it before. But the reason that they designed it initially in the 1960s and 70s was six digits was all for computer memory. Because if you mm. use a six digit date versus an eight digit date, without having like the 1999, you just do the 99 instead, you're going to save computer space. And then by saving that space, your computer is going to run faster. So it was all about efficiency. <laughs> the old days were having it, even the date takes up a lot of space. Yeah. Yes, even the date. <laughs> yeah. And countries were flipping their lids over this, over the potential vulnerability, because if you have no idea how computer and software are going to start reacting at a certain point in time, and it all becomes very unpredictable, and that could lean, lead to the downfall of all of these very important industries that make the world go round. That's really freaky to kind of stop and think about. So <clears throat> countries around the globe were going into overdrive trying to fix this bug by building out computer upgrades to software and applications so that they would be, quote unquote, Y2K compliant. <clears throat> and yeah, simply put, the easiest way to fix this was by adjusting the way that software listed out the date. Um, they expanded the year to go from two digits to four. So when the <laughs> clock struck midnight on January 1st, 2000, the date was instead 01012000. So that seems pretty simple, right? Yes. And this did supposedly prevent a lot of potential problems, or so some people say. According to Britannica.com, though, an estimated $300 billion was spent to fix this bug. And almost half of that was spent in the U.S. alone. Wow. The U.S. was freaking out. Bill Clinton was like, oh my gosh, we got to get this fixed. <laughs> yeah. And do you guys remember how the general public responded? Crazy. Yes. Yeah, I remember the news. I remember watching this on the Today Show. And the news, they made Y2K up to be like this end of the world scenario. Yeah. Yeah. Everything's going to fall to pieces. So you better stock up. You better be ready. Not surprisingly, a lot of people actually did this. A lot of people, you know, stocked up on foods and canned goods and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And I remember just from my own personal experience, my dad had built these two giant wooden like crates, not for Y2K. He built them for a completely unrelated uh, reason uh, he was going to ship a whole bunch of because he my dad is a, um, a filmmaker so he had all of his filmmaking equipment that he needed to ship over to Morocco for a documentary he was doing mm -hmm. and then he 
the boxes were number one, way too heavy. And number two, he built them and then he couldn't fit them out the door. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. so they, uh, they just ended up stuck in our basement. And my dad was like, you know what? I'm going to use this to stock up for Y2K. So mm-hmm. I remember seeing him put like canned goods in those boxes and just tubs of water, distilled water. And, you know, a lot of the necessities that people were trying to get. So that was my uh, personal story. Alex, I talked to your parents, and your parents didn't really do much at all. Mm-mm. They already, your parents are always, they have a prepped pantry at almost all times. So mm-hmm. they just lived life accordingly. James, did your family do anything? Uh, I mean, it was kind of like just how we normally lived anyway, which is, you know, growing food and preserving food and all that. But I do remember <laughs> they were kind of like let down that the world didn't end because I think, uh, I think they would have been comfortable watching it all burn since they'd already <laughs> had, a, had a like Y2K disaster st- scenario lifestyle anyway. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> That's, awesome. That's what I had a feeling that, that would probably be your answer. But yeah. guys, at the end of the day, there were some failures of various facilities when the clock struck midnight on January 1st, 2000. Um, for instance, there was actually a nuclear energy plant in Japan that had some radiation equipment fail, but fortunately they had a backup facility that prevented anything serious from happening. So there wasn't nothing really major came from that, thankfully. And then most of the things that were experienced were like on the small scale and they were just like kind of laughable. Like a 104 year old woman got a letter from her County's school, uh, school system saying that she needed to report for kindergarten the next year because <laughs> it assumed that she was four years old because the clock, you know, oh. it would have gone back to, um, to 1900 instead of, <laughs> yeah. So it's like, there was a lot of that. I did see one, one story where a guy received a bill for $91,000 for a movie that he rented because when that clock struck midnight, it assumed he had the movie for a hundred years instead. <laughs> so like there, a lot of the things that happened were small like that. And again, like the U S spent $1.5 billion fixing this. A lot of other countries around the globe didn't take it too seriously. Um, which kind of highlights just the difference at least back then that, and, and I mean, it's still very prevalent today. Some countries just don't have mm-hmm. the same type of infrastructure that we have here in America. Other, other countries don't necessarily have that. And there was a lot of inequality when it comes to that in the ni- like, mm. like 1999. But the, the countries that didn't prepare as well as the United States, they didn't have any huge meltdowns. They didn't really experience <laughs> anything major. So the one, one thing that I found really interesting when I was researching this was seeing the pictures of like all of the people that we're waiting to see what happened at midnight. Like it, are all of our computers going to shut down and they're sitting in front of their giant box computers in front of these like displays that look like they're from the 19, 1970s or eighties, like giant maps with little blinking dots on them. And it's like, this was in 1999. Yeah. So it made me stop and realize how far we have got come technologically within just 21, 21 years. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. It's amazing. Wow. So yeah, at the end of the day, a lot of people, they just missed the Y2K bug as a big hoax. And the media did not surprisingly fuel much of that panic. But the truth is that there were computer programmers who identified this bug years before it would have even occurred. Like they were like, Hey, this is a problem. We need to start fixing this. And the reason that we did avoid you know, some potentially catastrophic things was because there were computer programmers who were fixing it all along. Wow. So by the time we got to 
January 1st, there really wasn't much to, to worry about other than, you know, maybe a little small, a couple small things. But fortunately, we didn't have like any planes fall from the sky. I know some people were scared of that. Mm-hmm. We didn't have, um, you know, nuclear reactors exploding. So we got mm-hmm. lucky. And I did, I read a, a Quora thread about how some people prepared for, quote, the end of the world. Some people, again, definitely stocked up on food and water. Some people emptied their bank accounts. Mm-hmm. Some people, you know, they did everything they could to prepare. But then there were the real preppers. <laughs> the, the real preppers, from what I can tell, didn't sweat it. They were just like, this is not an end of the world scenario, which I thought was, was really interesting. And maybe they just thought that because they already had everything they needed in case something did happen. But a lot of them in these threads were like, you can't predict something like the end of the world. You can't predict a scenario like this. So most of them weren't nervous, but dang, (laughs) you guys, you know, we might be facing another Y2K situation. Yes. In 2038. Oh boy. Yes. According to slate.com, with is it's Unix and Linux operating systems. Is that how you say it, James? Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, well I got Windows. Yeah, well they well just wait. Nope. They store the date as number of seconds since midnight on January first, nineteen seventy, in a long string of digits. And January first, nineteen seventy was apparently an arbitrary date that was picked when Unix was becoming a thing. And Come January 2038, most computer systems apparently will not have enough space for that extra second digit. And so computer programmers say that the code may actually assume that the current time is actually negative. Whoa. So it's going it could possibly be a sim- similar scenario, you guys. Oh wow. Yeah, doom and gloom, you guys. Uh, prep up for 2038 just in case. <laughs> <laughs> Unless you have Windows computer, then you're good. James. <laughs> I have to deal with I have to deal with this boy right here <laughs> but guys what do you think are you guys nervous for 2038 no I, I think we got bigger fish to fry in the meantime <laughs> we've got bigger fish to fry I also think like that's what 20 or no what is it What's you got it you can do it I can't do it it's 2021 <laughs> It's 2021. I've got to write it out on my hand. It's in 2038. I hope that your elementary school math teachers uh, listen to this show. Listen, (laughs) listen. I have to write it out. I have to write it out on my hand. 17 years from now, you guys, I think that we have enough time to hopefully fix it. Yeah. You know what I mean? If we could do it before 1999, we can do it before 2038. That's right. So I'm not going to worry about it, at least not yet. Who knows? Will we all still be here in 2038? I don't know. I don't know. But James, I'm tired of talking. I think it's your turn to tell us about the Christmas truce. Can do. So, uh, yeah, Christmas truce. Really, really cool thing. And there's a lot. There's a lot of things to think about with regarding this. So what happened? This is the short. This is the Cliff's Notes version. So 1914, World War I. Brutal, very unpleasant war, as people are well aware. And what was taking place was a race to the sea. And, you know, the the kind of trench warfare that was going about, that was kind of the whole idea is whoever got to the sea first would have an enormous strategic advantage and it would possibly end at least multiple battles and maybe even the war itself. But on Christmas in 1914, there were... 
burial ceremonies, prisoner swaps, food exchanges, clothing exchanges, games, fun, just overall nice things exchanged between warring armies during a war. And it's to me, it's one of the most beautiful things on record, at least the past 150 years, just the idea that people could do this. And this was, by the way, not like some one-time thing just for Christmas. That's what we're focusing on is this one remarkable day. Because again, the, there's just these photos of people, you know, celebrating Christmas together, even though they're enemies. And it, there's something just beautiful about that. But it was actually pretty common to have kind of like armistice days where, you know, especially in, in no man's land, you know, cause it's dangerous on both sides to just be there. Like it, it makes, it reminds me that, Wars are generally fought for certain people, and the people who are in the trenches, it's not for their sake. Because you've got the – it actually makes me think, oddly enough, of, of like playing soccer in school and just having conversations with people like when I was on the field and I didn't really want to play. And we would just talk like me and an opposing <laughs> team person. Like these people, it wasn't really their war. In fact, it was a, it was an odd war because it was a war that everybody got dragged into just on the grounds of a variety of treaties. And the people who were, you know, not the top brass, they would often like just talk and be friendly with enemy soldiers on days where, you know, fires weren't taking place. Well, specifically for this, because it was Christmas these people, they played soccer together, and that's one of the big, iconic, like, photo thing. Uh, they, they would sing carols together. It was just this amazing, beautiful thing. And, of course, the following year, it was, you know, the commanders, again, the people who represent the people who are interested in the hostilities, they had a lot of negative things to say about that. And so finally, the, the following year, and the war had gotten a lot worse by then. The body count had gotten a lot higher. By 1916, they just straight up weren't doing this at all. But to me, there's just an amazing symbolism to that, you know, this idea of, of somebody from – and by the way, there were, there were uh, five different nations taking part in this. There was uh, the French Republic, the U.K., Austria-Hungary, the German Empire, and the Russian Empire. We America wasn't involved at, uh, at this at all. But uh, you know, even though there were two different warring factions, they they saw that commonality because there was a common culture in Europe, and and that common culture. One thing that really held it together is the celebration of Christmas. And so on that day, you know, they they all got along, and that's just something amazing. To me, when I when I think about it, when I think about the prospect of a really bloody and difficult war, I mean, World War One was one of those conflicts that just mulling over the actual day to day life of people. It wasn't like any war that came before it. Every war that came before it, it was very arm's length. Like like if if somebody died, it was because they were overpowered by somebody else or or, or shot by somebody else. Whereas in Trench warfare, the nightmare of it, and this is where like PTSD really started becoming a common thing, was you were in a trench, bombs were falling, and it was just random. Like you just didn't know. Like you and everyone you knew in at least, you know, post being drafted could just be obliterated. 
it was very random. It didn't feel like, you know, when in, in previous wars where people would rush a field, you know, and you saw your enemy coming at you. In this case, you, and this was a common expression at the time, you didn't hear the bomb that wiped you out. So it's a very stressful, dark, borderline nihilistic war to be in in the first place. And for people to be on, on opposite ends of this very brutal and very grisly combat, to find that common ground and to say, you know what, let's not murder each other. It's Christmas. Let's trade cigarettes and, and uh, mourn our, our dead comrades together, even though even if you know, it's with somebody who may have killed my, my uh, friend the other day. And there's just something, uh, I, I know I keep saying it, but there's just something absolutely beautiful about that. You know, and you had captains and infantry alike. You know, it was a day where status and nationality was largely irrelevant. And and this is even a quote. Uh, one of one of the guys who, who was talking about it uh, in the 18th Infantry Brigade, he said that uh, when the Germans declared the truce, that uh, one of his captains, and this is the quote, smoked a cigar with the best shot in the German army. Like, that's just amazing, because this was something you were terrified of every other day of the war, of a German sniper taking you out. And here he is smoking a cigar with one, the best one, according to him. That's just, wow. I don't know. It's one of those things where the more I think about it, the more I realize just how remarkable Christmas is, because it's the only thing I can think of that in the middle of a brutal and, in my opinion, senseless war, You've got people not fighting. And part of the grounds for that was, well, it's Christmas. I mean, it kind of makes you wish every day was Christmas. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's nuts. Yeah. I mean, it, can you imagine that today? Can you imagine like uh, somebody saying, no. oh, heck, it's Arbor Day. And like U.S. forces and ISIS play backgammon or something. Like It's, it's <laughs> unthinkable. But a lot yeah, of that also has to do with the fact that there was a commonality, culturally speaking. Right. Hmm. So it's it's something that's that's heavily weighed on the zeitgeist, and it's something that's been romanticized a great deal. But it doesn't change the fact that even if it is romanticized, it's pretty dang romantic on its own. It doesn't even really right. need to be inflated or exaggerated to be, in some ways, even though, as I mentioned, there were truces. There were plenty of days where people didn't, but there's something that I would I would be willing to label this a miracle in in the respect that it's something that stands out culturally through the ages is something that defies logic. It is. Yeah. It's amazing, like really. It. Yeah. That feels like the Christmas spirit to end on. Yes. Yeah. You guys, Christmas is tomorrow. Yep. If you're listening to this day comes out. Um, uh, is that right? Yeah. It yeah. comes out on Friday, which I'm pretty this sure. This comes out on Friday? Or, oh my gosh, you're right. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Tomorrow is Christmas Eve. Eve. Yeah. Listen, my brain is boggled. <laughs> but you know what? It doesn't matter because we're here together. The holidays are almost here and that's all that matters. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So I hope that you'll truce with me that yeah. I had the incorrect date and it's okay. Mm, truce. We're at peace truce. today, but tomorrow I'll see you in the trenches. Yeah. <laughs> well, guys, is there anything that you want to add? Merry Christmas. Yeah, Merry Christmas. Happy holidays to everybody. Um, and also, our music is by Grant Cook. You can find it on Amazon Music, iTunes, uh, Spotify, anywhere you listen to music. Music. Well, until next week, you guys, we hope that you can keep it straight.
you were around.